Hello and welcome to the New Realities of Cybersecurity podcast. My name is Ian Todd. I'm a data privacy and cybersecurity consultant here at PwC. In this podcast series, we'll explore the new realities of cybersecurity, discussing the various underlying challenges that our clients face or will face in the future. We'll spend time each week talking to experts in their field who understand the ever-evolving world of threats. Today, I'm joined by Jane Wainwright, Director of Privacy and Data Protection at PwC, who will discuss the upcoming General Data Protection Regulation, the largest data protection regulatory changes seen in a generation. Jane has a diverse and decorated history, and today we'll cover everything from her career in the Army and time securing the London Olympics to her role as Director of PwC's rapidly growing privacy team. So, uh, so Jane, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Um, I think this is a really topical area right now for cybersecurity. Um, I know with, with Brexit and the, the upcoming uh, changes to the data protection laws, people are really interested in privacy and, and cybersecurity. So um, I, I guess to start with a little bit of your background and introduction from yourself would be really interesting. I know you've done a lot of stuff with the Army in the past uh, and, and some stuff with the Olympics that's fascinating. So a little bit of an introduction would be lovely. Yeah, thank you, Ian. So I'm a director in the privacy and data protection team. So I sit in our risk assurance business but I work very, very closely with colleagues in consulting and in legal services as well. So the team is made up of many, many skills and expertise. Um, and I've been doing data protection, I guess, for the last two and a half years in the firm. But you know, as you described, my career has um, been very different in the past. So I started out in the military in 1996, many, many years ago. Um, and I joined the Intelligence Corps. So I was British Army Intelligence for 12 years and I served most of that time in Northern Ireland. So um, my, my role there was primarily around counterintelligence. Um, and I guess I finished in the military around 2008, where I was looking at the insider threat to the armed forces. So had somebody joined the military with the intent of doing something bad, or was somebody in there that had been persuaded in some way or changed their mind right. to do something? And it does happen. It happens yeah. all over the place. You know, you'll see in the press as well that people in business do bad things. Now, it doesn't mean they always had that intention, but something can change that makes them do something bad. Yeah, yeah. So it's not exclusive just to the commercial world. It does happen, you know, in, in, um, in, the, um, in the public sector as well. Uh, so I left in 2008 and I went to the defence contractor Raytheon. So we were the prime in uh, the e-borders project, and that was about the digitisation of the UK border. So we'd won that project um, from the Home Office, and I was responsible for the security aspects of that programme. So looking at how the design of the e-borders environment was going to be kept secure. Now, e-borders itself, whilst it does continue on, it isn't in the same way that it had been built back in right. um, in the in the two thousand in the earlier two thousands, because contractors had changed in and out. Um, but I suppose the premise of it still exists. In borders needed to be tighter yeah. in security. Yeah. So that was about the biometrics, and it was really born because the prime minister at the time couldn't answer the question as to how many legal immigrants we had in the United Kingdom. So that's why they designed this idea of e-borders, so you could count in and count out people coming and mm. going, and it was to al allow legitimate travel but to prevent people from coming in that had a different agenda. Now, whether it works or not, it's a different question, right. but um, you know, the, the, the principle is still there. Um, but I was there for a couple of years, and then I was offered the opportunity to go and work for London 2012. So in 2009, I was asked to join LOCOG, and the, the OCOG itself stands for the Organising Committee, and the L, just for interest, comes from the fact that it was in London. Right. So Rio just was ROCOG, that's right. how it works. Right. 
Um, so I joined Locog in 2009 as the head of corporate security. So I was responsible again for the insider threat to the games. So a workforce of 200 and plus thousand people had somebody joined the workforce with a hidden agenda to have done something right. during the games. I had information security as well. Um, I had data protection, so looking at all the information relating to every single ticket holder, people who bought a teddy, a mascot, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and I had intellectual property protection as well. So Wenlock and Mandeville, you may remember fondly or not, mm. which were the mascots. So I looked after the intellectual property around the protection of the image of the mascots as well, because that's quite a big deal for a business. And, yeah, yeah. and if you think about some of our clients that protect information or assets that mean a lot to them, you might be surprised to hear, in fact, that the images of mascots mean a lot to an Olympic Games right. because yeah. it's part of their brand. Um, so I was with those guys up until 2012. I had the best professional experience of my life, apart from PwC, of course. Um, but it was fantastic, and I learned a lot. And you know, you know, trying to stage an Olympic Games in you know in a in a decade that we're in in a city like London is incredibly complex. Yeah. So you know, it's it's a learning experience that I will never have again. So I'm, I you know I feel very fortunate that I had that. I then moved out to NBC Universal, the film and media group. So I was the director of security there for the European operations. And again, it was pretty creative. So I looked at um, content protection. Um, but because we had a wing of our business that was about news, I had to support operations in hostile environments as well. So journalists going into places like Syria um, and the Middle East. And I also looked at the security of the operation for NBC. So that mm. could be everything from film crews doing red carpets in Leicester Square, again, to things like dropping off journalists in the middle of a war zone. Um, but then I, I moved on to PwC. Um, so I've been with the firm now, and I think it will be actually four years in April. Right. So started out in cybersecurity because of my broad security background but moving into privacy, as I described earlier. But I've done a number of things since I've you know, been in the firm around the security spectrum. So you know, I've given physical security advice as well as personnel security and, and other areas. So um, yeah, that's where I am today. It's fascinating. I guess what underpins that entire journey is data and the security around data. And like you say, maybe intellectual property, it might be personal data. And I guess that fits quite nicely into obviously where you are now. And, and I guess the first question for me is to, to ask you how things have kind of progressed or changed over the last five years from a from a data protection point of view and and what the challenges are for organisations. So how, how have things changed over the last five years? So I guess, I mean, I suppose you'll find the same story when you ask people just about cyber as well, yeah. is it has, become less of a single responsibility, where I suppose if you think about data protection as a subject, it's the lawyers, or if it's cybersecurity, it's the IT people. Mm. And I think what I've seen is that there has been this advance in the way people think about the subject matter, in that everybody needs to understand about it, not just in a um, in a commercial sense, but also personally at home, you know? So you'll, you'll find there's adverts on TV now about how to protect yourselves and yeah, your data. Yeah. Where years ago, that probably would have been lock your doors and your windows, right? Because it's about protecting your property from burglars. We're now in a digital age, you know, the same principle applies. It's just people relate to it more and it affects more people than it ever did. And I think it is just about, you know, the upsurge in how technology has moved, um, you know, in it, 
what what happens in a space of a year has taken decades and decades to get to, but now exponentially, you know, it changes in a matter of weeks and months. Yeah. And I think that's probably what's, you know, increased the, the level of risk that we see, not helped or helped in some cases by media stories as well. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the, the prevalence of data and the sharing of it, you know, that, that kind of digital economy. If you want to buy services and goods online, quite often there's a trade-off between yeah. you buying something and giving you the data. But of course, there's consequences to that. Quite often they can be positive if a business is able to do something good with that data, like profiling, for example. You may find that the products and services you then get as a result of changing that data with them, or sorry, handing it over, um, allow them to give you a better service. But equally for some people, they find that intrusive. Yeah. And then if that business does get breached in some way, you know, you feel invaded in some way. So I think there's, there is a trade-off, um, but it definitely, definitely has changed. And I think it's only gonna, it's only gonna get worse. And that feeds into, I guess, my, my next question really is, what are the big challenges for organisations? Obviously, we've touched upon the complexity of the, of the amount of data that's there, but what other big challenges are we seeing at the moment? I guess, so for some, and I think it's a very sector-specific answer, for some it is very much about the protection of it, um, and for others it might be about liberating it and using it to their advantage. So, you know, you, you'll hear the phrase quite often, big data. Um, Big data can be used in many different ways. So if you think of, you know, farm or life sciences, for example, you know, they're, they're trying to use data that's been collected over years and years to perhaps find the magic cure for something that they've struggled with. In fact, the answer's always been there. They just haven't been able to use data right. in the way that, you know, modern technology allows them to. But then if you look at it from a retail perspective, you've got those guys there that are hoovering up data because they want to do the profiling that I yeah. described earlier and package it up and sell it on as well, like you see with some sectors like, you know, in, um, insurance, for example, so in financial services, there's the selling of data, which is seen as quite prolific there. Now, it's not to say it's against the law to do that, but the way data is used um, is, is actually very, very different. So a, a big aspect of privacy that I'm reading more and more about is this idea of privacy by design. Yeah. And I believe it was our, our colleagues over in Canada, some of the guys over there have been talking about this. Um, is, is this a solution? Is privacy by design? I know, I know there's not one solution to everything, but is this something that organisations should be thinking more about? And I guess maybe explaining what privacy by design is would be helpful as well for listeners. Yeah, so I guess you know, the, the concept, or PBD as it's also known, is about when you start something new, how do you make sure that privacy or data protection is reflected in the blueprint of it if your initiative touches on personal data in some way. So rather than retrofitting it in later on, which happens quite a lot, it's important that you build it in. And again, you know, this is this is a fairly oldish concept that we've seen, you know, security by design, particularly in the physical world, mm. um, is not new. So if you think about designing an airport, for example, you know, you may not feel it all the time, but security has been built in everywhere. Right. Even things that look like benign bollards are in fact, probably hostile vehicle mitigation, right. which means that a car is not going to get through that. But you wouldn't understand that when you see it. Yeah. I think privacy by design has got the same concept is it may not scream privacy at you, but it's been designed with privacy in mind. And I think that helps, you know, particularly from a client perspective, it helps them to get themselves out hot water later on, because a lot of the risk that we see is legacy risk. And it's because it wasn't considered. Right at you know, the, the very inception of whatever initiative it is that we're going to describe. So if you can start as you mean to go on and build privacy in from the outset, it's a lot easier to manage risk and stop yourself getting in trouble or um, you know, being non-compliant, if you like. Um, 
than it is when you're trying to look backwards and dig yourself out of a hole. And, and are organisations understanding that? I mean, do you see organisations saying, yeah, this is the best way to do this? I guess startups and, and younger companies will probably be more willing to have privacy by design just by the nature of their business. As it's growing, they can get privacy right in there. I mean, do we see a lot of organisations adopting this right now? I would say not really because it's quite complex where you have organisations that have a lot of initiatives going on at the same time, particularly very data-centric organisations. You need the discipline and rigour to get privacy by design in from the very outset. Now, given what we're describing is, whilst data protection and privacy is not a new concept, its prevalence in the economy is becoming, or right. is more of a new concept, and therefore expecting that level of maturity is perhaps slightly unfair. Um, but I think it is understood now, more so because of the new regulations that's coming through Europe and the benefits of doing it. And I think it's not to say that clients or, you know, in particular, you know, businesses that I've been alongside disagree with the concept. It's how do you make that live and breathe in practice when quite often you'll have a data protection officer and then you'll have maybe 60 or 70 initiatives in a business. How do you get the discipline in to, you know, to get these people to do that from the beginning yeah. is quite hard, in yeah. fact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I know we're quite fortunate to actually catch you in London uh, today and you've been travelling everywhere all over the world. So how, how does the, the picture of privacy look where you've been travelling? So I know you've been over to Asia, you've been over to, to North America. How, how do we compare from a European perspective and what, what's the feeling from other parts of the world about privacy? So it's interesting that there is a perception that we are very preoccupied with privacy in Europe. Um, you know, and I've had direct questions, you know, just, you know, as you referred to my, my travels in Asia by clients in Japan over why, why the Europeans are, you know, so hell bent on making sure that their rights are observed. Mm. Um, and, you know, in the States, what you've got there is a very litigious environment there as well. So it's not to say that they, they don't consider it, but they, you know, they know what their rights are if something goes wrong. So I think right across the globe, you've got this almost... Um, this agnostic definition of what privacy may or may not be to people, because what it means to you or me is different, right. you know, to, to, to people who are listening to this as well. You know, you would argue that most people would like to have the right to a private life, um, you know, unless you're in the public eye, and obviously there's a trade-off there. But most of the time, I think, you know, people do want to have their privacy observed. But if you look at behaviours online, People are, some people are more willing to give data away than others, for example, and what you expect in return for that is different as well. So yeah. some people are quite happy to post pictures of their family online. It doesn't, you know, it's not an issue for them, and others are really not. So I think in that respect, is it is, you know, I'm sure there is a way to describe us as um, as a continent, you know, or even, you know. Um, how Asia looks at it different from Europeans, different from the Americans. But I think even within there, you're going to get you're going to get mixes, yeah, and it is about perception. Um, so I think the big question, uh, is, I guess there's two points to this question, but the first of all, how is the GDPR, so the General Data Protection Regulations that we're going to see in May 2018, how, how is this going to affect the privacy landscape? And I, I mean, obviously from a legal compliance perspective, it's huge, but everything else, is it, I mean, how big of an impact do you see this being? So I guess for the, the so the General Data Protection Regulation is the, the new kind of one-stop shop law coming out of Europe, which governs the, the management of personal data 
um, and that's related to the 500 million citizens of Europe. So if you are a business that is touching data relating to Europeans, yet yeah, you're in the States, you're still governed by the GDPR. Right. So it's about the protection of the information and rights of the citizens of Europe. It really is a global, globally little impact organisation yeah, everywhere. Yeah. If you if you do touch citizens in Europe, then you, you know you you, you definitely uh, you know you come into scope of, of the regulation. I guess you know what we had before that was a disparate amount of laws and regulations under a directive that came out of Europe that basically said to European countries. Here it is, but you can kind of do what you want with it. Right. So in the United Kingdom, we have the Data Protection Act. And the challenge we had across Europe is that many different countries thought about data protection in different ways. So there was an imbalance in some places and perhaps an overprotection in others, you know, as it was perceived. So now what this does is it just regulates all of Europe in the same way. Right. Um, and I guess, you know, it's it's been in the making for many, many years and it actually was born in the UK. So it was the European sorry, it was the it was the UK Information Commissioner at the time that suggested that this was a good thing to do. Um, so businesses have been aware of it and it's been um, it's been evolving over time. So there's been many iterations, but it comes into full effect in May 2018. So businesses have um, been given a fairly shortish window to to move into what the GDPR is asking them to do. Um, and, you know, that there are there are very interesting stories to be told across the economy where some that have just put their head in the sand and said, well, we'll see what happens. Is it a bit Y2K? And we've seen other clients that have been, you know, really getting themselves geared up for it and prepared for it. And we've also seen others that have been trying, but perhaps have not been doing the right thing or been not, not been approaching it in, in the right way. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but fundamentally what it's trying to do is, you know, put the power back in the hands of the citizen. So, you know, the, the, the changes there really are allowing the citizen to take more control of their data. Um, it allows more powers by the regulator. So fines have increased from, you know, if we think, to, think of the UK, for example, the maximum fine that the regulator can give at the moment, and the regulator here is the information commissioner, is uh, £500,000, which is, you know, fairly small fry compared to the new fines um, as of 2018, which is €20 million. Euros. Yeah or 4% of worldwide group turnover. Um, compulsory rights to audit, so the regulators will now have those compulsory rights. Um, mandatory breach notification, so if you breach now, you have to tell the regulator, and you also have to tell the citizen if it's deemed bad enough. I think that enough. particularly is a really interesting point. I think that gets overlooked quite often, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's 72 hours, 72 hours that people yeah. have. So, And I, I don't know how many organisations are comfortable with being able to diagnose a breach and then relay out that information, like you say, to the Commission Office or to the, the people who, uh, they're, not their employees, sorry, their customers. Mm. I, I think that's a really difficult thing for organisations to do. And it kind of feeds into this idea about the DPO, doesn't a data protection officer, how they're going to be having more responsibility with the GDPR and this will be part of their remit, I suppose. Um, but I don't know how many people are actually ready for this. I, I mean, I think, you know, th there's been a, a number of public breaches, you know, over the last couple of years that have been heavily criticised for not coming out quicker than what they did. And one of them in particular, you know, came out within, you know, say 40 odd hours or so and was criticised for that. So if you think they were actually under the bar for the GDPR, yet they still got criticised. And I think anything that touches on 
consumers or the general public, it's very hard to get it right when it comes to response. Now you've given a 72 hour notice. I think you know that, that's interesting on paper, in black and white, in the regulation, but how that translates into practice and how a business actually responds on the day, I think is the thing that's most important. So we would always say to clients, you know, you should really rehearse yourselves in these scenarios yeah. because they're becoming ever more prevalent. And we see it on the news all the time. There's no excuse really, if you, know, if you had a CEO in front of a select committee, you know, you know, perhaps a decade ago, they wouldn't have been able to lean on any other examples in the economy of where this had happened and therefore what the expectations were. But now there's plenty of them yeah. where I'm sure they'd get grilled to say, well, you heard about so-and-so and you saw that happen and why did you not learn from that? So I think the excuses are wearing thinner and thinner. And even though you've got 72 hours, how you react in those 72 hours, I think is one of the most important things. Absolutely, and I think even before a breach even occurs. We, we've seen this in organisations we've worked for or worked with um, where there's an expectation that you should have been doing stuff a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, just in case a breach happens. And we've seen where these breaches have occurred and there's just not really any controls there, there's no security in place. And I think even with the GDPR on the horizon, I, I do worry for a lot of organisations that just aren't prepared internally for any of this. They don't know where the data is, they don't know what their retention policies are, they don't know what the controls are around this data. And all of this will really boil over, I think, from May 2018 onwards. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's about understanding your journey between now and then. And I think, you know, it's very important for businesses when they take custody of data to um, do the right thing by it and its consumers or the data subjects, not because the law requires them to. And of course, that is a big player in all of this but because ethically it is the right thing to do. If you've got data relating to people, it is your charge to take care of it. Yeah. So whilst there may seem a lot to be done, I think you know what we advise businesses on is what is the right thing to do that gives you the greatest benefit to protect that information, whether it be from security or, you know, for some sectors, accuracy is a very important thing. So if you think about healthcare, for example, you certainly don't want to tell a patient that they've got cancer when they haven't. Yeah. And that has happened because of inaccurate data. So again, that is a data protection issue. So, you know, the message there is data protection isn't just about security. It's about how long you keep data for. It's about how accurate is it and why have you got it in the first place and how are you using it? And I think that's been a misconception around data protection quite a lot. And I speak to CEOs just, just last week, I was with a FTSE 100 board. Uh, retailer, and when you ask the question around what does data protection actually mean to you, quite often you get, oh, it's about security, it's right. about the security of data. And, you know, they can be forgiven for that because that's pretty much how they've been told. But of course, we know we understand that it's far broader than that. And I think that's what businesses need to understand is you may secure it, but there are other things that you could be doing with it that can still prove or, you know, um, result in harm. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we've touched on different areas that we at PwC are, are trying to help our clients and help organizations. So what are the main the main offerings we, we have right now? I know we've talked about the RAT, um, we've got some boot camps, but what else are we doing? What are the big things that we're offering out to, to clients? So I, you know, I, I've described the fact that there's a, there's a small amount of time left. And you know, what we believe is that there isn't enough time to do all that is needed. And that's for all clients right across the economy. And that's not just here in the UK because the, the, the UK team that I mentioned earlier is actually the global centre of excellence for GDPR. So we have team members that have been out, you know, as I mentioned in Japan, um, recently had um, one of our senior managers come back from Australia and we've been out in the States as well. So it touches on many businesses across the globe. And what we're doing is trying to help them to figure out what's the right thing to be doing now yeah. in preparation for May 18. Um, 
And quite often what we're seeing is purposeless activity. We describe it as so people are doing stuff, just burning away at doing stuff. So we're trying to encourage them to put a stop on that and just have a little think about what does data protection actually mean to their business? Where are their biggest risk areas and what are they worried about the most? And once you get them to start think, uh, start to think like that, it's easier to then put investment into areas that really do need it because between now and then, you would almost need an army of people um, and more time than the day gives us to get yourselves compliant with GDPR. So it's about fixing the stuff that matters most and that's in the interest of the business and of the end consumer or the data subject, if you like. Um, and we do that through a process that considers their vision and strategy for data protection for the GDPR. We want to make sure that clients understand that because with every good project, you know, it should have a vision, arguably, because otherwise you don't know if you've gotten there or not. And then we look at the risk elements associated with their current state. And then we try to help them to figure out, OK, in which order should we now start to tackle this? And then hopefully get them to a state where they can do BAU and start to, you know, fight smaller fires as they get further down the road. Um, you know, I described the team earlier. We're, we're a mix of barristers, solicitors, risk professionals, cybersecurity professionals, data professionals. Um, and I think when you put all those people together in a room and you give them something like the General Data Protection Regulation, um, you know, what has ultimately come out of that is is excellent when it comes to a solution and a well thought through solution that isn't just about a tick box exercise for compliance sake. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know you've touched upon this, but it covers all sectors, absolutely, all sides yeah. of businesses, yeah. um, geographic location, everything. So yeah. this is a really all encompassing uh, change to the regulations, isn't it? And, and like you say, we are fortunate here that we've got great lawyers, uh, great cyber professionals, great data professionals. So we, we can offer a whole wide range of, of different things for clients, which, yeah. is, which is really helpful. Um, so I mean, that, that was great. I, I think we could do this podcast five more times and have more information coming out. So I, I really appreciate your time today. I think it's been really, uh, really helpful for people who are wanting to know more about the GDPR, more about what PwC do and, and a bit of cyber in the middle there as well. Thank you. So thank you for joining us. I think that was a really great introduction to the GDPR and some of the huge challenges organizations face up until May 2018. Next week, I'll be joined by Charlie McMurdy discussing the future of cybersecurity law. In the meantime, we'd love to get your comments, suggestions, and questions. So contact me directly on Twitter at iantodd86 or email me at ian.todd at pwc.com. And please remember to subscribe to the series so that you won't miss any future episodes. I look forward to hearing from you.